Welcome back to Pursuit of Justice. On our last program, we met Adina Thompson, Intake Coordinator for the Innocence Project of Florida. I'd like to travel back to 1992, to the inception of the first Innocence Project, which was created by Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld in New York City. They met at the Bronx Legal Aid Society. The project they founded began as a legal clinic at the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law. They learned about DNA while working on a case in the 1980s. A man named Marion Coakley had been accused of rape and robbery. He had a strong alibi, plus support from his South Bronx community. At the time, a new technology was being tested in England called DNA typing. The man behind that testing was Alec Jeffries, a geneticist. He compared DNA sequences from the crime scene to the suspect's DNA. In Coakley's case, the DNA was too degraded to use. Ultimately, he was proven innocent by Scheck and Neufeld using other means, but they saw that DNA could be used to both identify guilty suspects as well as being able to eliminate those who were not guilty. In 1989, the first DNA exoneration took place in the United States. A man named Kirk Bloodsworth, who was sentenced to death for the rape and murder of a, 19, a nine-year-old girl in Maryland. Bloodsworth was the first person to be taken off death row due to DNA evidence which proved his innocence. Gary Dotson was also exonerated in 1989, the first to be declared innocent in a criminal conviction case. Just as an aside, DNA comes into play in cases only about 20% of the time. Evidence must be preserved properly. There is no statute where states are duty-bound to save evidence after a trial is completed. It is different state to state. I would like to mention some recent cases of exoneration around the country and the current number of exonerees. In an earlier broadcast, I referred to the National Registry of Exonerations, and that is my go-to website it is fascinating. I think you could probably spend all day looking at the remarkable things on that website. They keep track of every single exoneration that has been recorded. And right now, today, as of today, and it changes day to day, there are 2,492 exonerations. And what they also give you is how many years are lost. There are 22,010 years lost for all these various people who have spent time in prison. So I wanted to just pick out the most recent exonerations and just to give you an idea of 
how the different states these people are from, the different sentences they got, how long they served. And the man I'm going to begin with is James Chad Lewis Clay. He is from the state of Michigan. He was exonerated on August 31st, just, you know, very short time ago. He was sentenced to 25 to 50 years in prison for a rape he did not commit. But he was one of the lucky people. He was exonerated in two years. Now, the next person is from Ohio. His name is Charles Jackson, and he was exonerated the 29th of August. He was sentenced to 30 years to life for murder, and he served 28 years. So look at the difference between the first two men. Now, here's a man from North Carolina, James Blackman. He was exonerated on the 22nd of August. He served 21 years. He was sentenced to life in prison. And the next man is from Pennsylvania. His name is Scott Godeski, and he was exonerated on the 19th of August. He was sentenced to life in prison for murder. He served 22 years. Now, remember, all of these men, and there are women too, are innocent, proven innocent. Here's a man from California. He uh, was released on the 14th of August. He was sentenced to 57 years to life, and he served six years. And the last man I'm going to read is John Miller from Pennsylvania, and he was sentenced to life without parole for robbery and murder in Philadelphia. He served 11 years. So the, as you can see, the range of sentencing um, uh, and how many years they put in some of these people is, is very, very wide. So each day, as I said, they add someone to the website. We talked a little bit in the last couple of podcasts about the causes of wrongful conviction. I know Kate German mentioned it in her interview with me, um, but I wanted to go into a little bit more depth. So the leading culprit in terms of the key factor in sending people to prison who are innocent is prosecutorial misconduct. That was not always the case. It used to be the number one factor was um, witness misidentification. Uh, that's not true. It's been pushed out by official misconduct. What does that mean, prosecutorial misconduct? Well, in 1963, the Supreme Court passed the Brady ruling, which required prosecutors to make all key evidence available to the defense. Handing over that material evidence is not always done. If material evidence is missing and that evidence could eliminate the defendant so he or she walks free, the end result is that someone goes to prison who is innocent and the guilty party remains free. Imagine the consequences of that scenario. There are hundreds and thousands of cases like this. We heard Adina from the Innocence Project of Florida say that they get a thousand letters a year from people just in the state of Florida telling them they are innocent. So we know there are many, many people who are 
uh, innocent and looking for help. We will be taking a closer look at many of these cases in future podcasts. Here's a question to ponder. If a prosecutor withholds such vital evidence, are there any consequences for that official? The answer to that is no. Prosecutors alone are exempt from being punished. They have total immunity. There is now a debate raging about the power prosecutors have, which is unfettered by professional, ethical, or civil penalties when it's abused. And that is from the New York Law Journal. I read an article from March of this year. Another key factor contributing to wrongful conviction, according to this article, is misleading forensic evidence. Examples of what is now called junk science are bite marks, some hair analysis, and blood spatter. A case of guilt or innocence has been built solely on one of these factors. Sometimes there might be two of them, but you know it depends on the case. And now it has become evident that there is no scientific basis on which to build a case of guilt when it comes to this junk science. And again, we will be highlighting cases where junk science put a person away for a very long time or even for life. Another factor that used to be the number one cause of wrongful convictions, as I said, is witness misidentification. Research tells us that the human mind is not like a tape recorder or a video camera. We don't record events exactly as we see them. We can be mistaken. Parts of what we have seen can be altered in our memory. There are some fascinating cases which will illustrate this factor. And I promise you, we will be delving into those in later podcasts. Another factor, false confessions. This happens often, but not always, in cases with juvenile offenders. They cave under pressure. They want to do what the authorities tell them so they can go home. Many times they are told, just tell us what happened and you can go home. Ultimately, that does not happen. Regardless of age, capacity, or state of the confessor, what they have in common is a decision that confessing will be more beneficial to them than continuing to maintain their innocence. There is a program on Netflix called The Confession Tapes, which illustrates this factor. It features taped confessions from real people, people who are innocent. Jailhouse snitches are another factor. Often a snitch is given a lighter sentence or even freed from prison if he or she tells authorities that the defendant told them what really happened. The snitch has nothing to lose by lying. If anything, there is much to gain. A jury is not always told that information about the case is coming from a snitch. And the last factor I'm going to mention is bad lawyering or ineffective counsel. Often lawyers are overworked, particularly public defenders. They are not fully prepared for a trial. 
They fail to call key witnesses and they haven't put in the necessary time to defend their client. Now, I'm going to talk about another factor. It's not in the group I just mentioned, and yet it's a thread that runs through many cases. And Kate German from uh, Centurion Ministries referred to it in her interview with me. So I wanted to go into this a little bit deeper. And I found an article in the University of Michigan Journal Law of Reform, uh, Journal of Law Reform in 2017. And it was written by Katherine Judson from the University of Wisconsin Law School. And she talks about a term she uses. Kate uses blind bias. She uses confirmation bias. Same thing. The subject of confirmation bias runs through much of wrongful conviction literature. There is bias in incentivized testimony from a witness such as a jailhouse snitch. There is bias in extracting a false confession where a suspect is told there's damaging information the police already have, leading a suspect to feel they have no choice but to confess. Bias appears in fraud perpetrated by lab analysis where results aren't what they seem to be and in misstatements about what the evidence actually shows. Tunnel vision is another term that's used here also, describing a situation where the subject filters evidence that will build a case for conviction while ignoring or suppressing evidence that points away from guilt. Most of us do not like to be wrong. So we seek out information that reinforces our previously held beliefs. And here's a quote from Robertson Davies. The eye sees only what the mind is prepared to comprehend. We develop shortcuts because we're looking for consistency. Too much information is hard to catalog. So in our own way, we filter out what we think is extraneous and not important. It's impossible to verify every piece of information that comes to us. And now I want to share with you a fascinating case which illustrates confirmation bias or blind bias or tunnel vision. And it is the case of Jeffrey Deskovic. Jeffrey was accused of the rape and murder of a high school classmate in Peekskill, New York in 1989. He was just 16 at the time. He became a suspect due to behavior exhibited the day the young woman was found. He seemed overly distraught at her death, visiting her wake three times. A polygraph test was administered. It was done with no lawyer or parent present. He was given only coffee that day. He was interrogated by detectives for six hours in between three polygraph sessions. And after that, he confessed. He was told that he failed the polygraph tests. The detective expressed his belief that Jeffrey was guilty. Now, even though there was DNA testing as they had semen from the rape kit, results showed Deskovic was not the source of the semen in that kit. Jeffrey was told if he was not the source of semen in the rape kit, 
he would be cleared as a suspect. But instead, prosecutors proceeded based on his confession. In 1991, he was convicted of first-degree rape and second-degree murder, despite DNA testing showing he was not the source of semen in the rape kit. The state argued the semen had come from a, a consensual sex partner and that Jeffrey had killed the victim in a jealous rage. His sentence was 16 years to life. In January of 2006, the Innocence Project, the one that Barry Sheck started with Peter Neufeld in New York, took his case. By then, there was a database nationwide and newer technology for testing DNA samples. So the database is that anyone who was arrested for a crime, um, a serious crime, would be there. In September of 2006, the semen was matched to a convicted murderer whose name was Stephen Cunningham, who was in prison for strangling the sister of his live-in girlfriend. In September of 2006, Jeffrey Deskovic was released from prison when his conviction was overturned. His case was dismissed on November the 2nd, 2006. He had served nearly 16 years. He won $40 million from New York. Not every state pays out in a wrongful conviction case. He set up a foundation in his name to help people like him who were wrongfully convicted. In May of 2019, Jeffrey Deskovic graduated from Pace with a degree in law. Now, I just mentioned compensation, and I wanted to um, tell you a little bit more about what that really means. At this time, 17 states out of the 50 states in our country give no compensation to those who have been wrongly incarcerated. 33 states do give something, but the amounts vary widely. Think about it. You have been in prison for decades, earning pennies per hour. You have no real job skills. Technology-wise, you are way behind. Do states have an obligation to compensate you for what was done to you? The Innocence Project says they do. They recommend 50000 per year for every year you were wrongfully incarcerated. Now, here is a list of states which do not compensate people if they are wrongly incarcerated. Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Delaware, Georgia, Idaho, Kentucky, New Mexico, North Dakota, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Dakota, South Carolina, and Wyoming. Kansas just passed a comprehensive law in May of last year for the wrongly incarcerated. It will pay out $65,000 per year in addition to giving assistance with housing, tuition, counseling, and health care. In 2004, Congress passed the Justice for All Act it guarantees people with federal crimes 50,000 per year for wrongful imprisonment and 100,000 
for those sent to death row who were innocent. Now, this is federal only. Texas has paid out $93 million in the last 25 years for wrongful incarceration. And I wanted to give you a sampling of some states that do pay. Uh, Florida, for example, pays $50,000 a year for every year you were inside. However, it has the bill has a clean hands provision, meaning that before you were wrongfully locked up, if you had a prior felony, you get nothing. Texas pays $80,000 a year for every year that you're inside. Massachusetts caps their payment at a million dollars. Colorado pays out $70,000 per year. And Iowa pays out $25,000 for lost wages per year. And that's the max. Louisiana pays out $250,000 total over a 10-year period. I wanted just to give you a case in point before we go, and it's a case of Malcolm Alexander, who was from Louisiana. He served 38 years for rape that DNA proved he did not commit. He had a lawyer who was later disbarred due to so many complaints about his failure to represent Mr. Alexander in a completely professional manner. The lawyer was the subject of many other complaints from past clients. Mr. Alexander was arrested at the age of 21 in 1979, long before DNA helped solve crimes of this type. He was identified by the victim who was white, he was black, but she could not have seen him clearly as she was raped in a small, dark bathroom from behind with a gun pointed at her head. Malcolm's sentence was life. His case was taken up by the Innocence Project in New York. In 1996, that's when they picked up his case, but they found the rape kit had been destroyed, just what I was saying before, along with a semen-stained towel four years after Mr. Alexander's conviction. All that was left was hair evidence at the scene. DNA testing concluded the hair was not a match to Mr. Alexander's hair. And he was released in January of 2018. He filed for compensation from the state of Louisiana, but as I just said before, the maximum amount is 250000 And here is a man who served 38 years of his life. So we have come to the end of our podcast today. I thank you so much for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can feel free to email me at hendel13. My last name is H-E-N-D-E-L at gmail. Dot com. Hoping you'll tune in next time. Thank you so much for listening.